I think being an engineer, I was always curious mm. when somebody would say to me, you can't do this for some reason, or you can't find this rare lost flower or, or beetle or whatever it is. I would say, why not? Place any obstacle in the path of Colonel John Blashford Snell, be it a 12-foot python, a mountain peak, a deep-sea trench, water rapids. The 85-year-old former army officer will find a way to overcome it, up and over, around, across. The tenacity, energy and curiosity of one of the world's most respected explorers has held him in good stead for often fantastical missions to distant lands. In his 30s, he navigated a team down the Congo River and completed a hair-raising descent to the Blue Nile, where he invented white water rafting by default. Later, these expeditions became vehicles and educational initiatives for underprivileged youth, with Operation Drake and Raleigh, supported by the Prince of Wales. I catch up with John Blashford Snell in his home in Dorset, surrounded by the fascinating memorabilia of his many adventures and travels. I began by asking him where his next expedition would take him. The first one, God willing, is to Bolivia, where we've got a series of projects involving the people who live along the Beni River, which is in the northern part of the Amazonas area of Bolivia. And they're very poor. And, of course, one thing they always cry out for is schools. Mm. And a lot of their buildings are in bad repair. So we took on one particular village and we we built the school and we're putting in a water system. And we've now got to bring in furniture for the school and books. So your your expeditions have always been basically about... It's a journey for aid, isn't it? It's yes, well, scientific and, and aid. The theory I work to is that if you want to go out and find out some information about plants or animals or people or whatever, you're going to need the assistance of the local people. And if you're going to, to get that, the best way is to offer them some, some sort of help. So they get, if you like, some sort of profit out of it. So you, we help them, they help us, and the results hopefully help everybody. And in the case of Bolivia, we're, we're interested in particular in an unusual type of alligator, that was seen by reasonably reliable sources uh, some years ago. It's about 18 feet long, and it has a strange head, which, according to the witnesses, has horns sticking upright from the top of the jaw, uh, a bit like a rhinoceros, in a way. <laughs> and it so. blows steam upwards as it, when it comes up, which that is possible. And I then did some research and discovered that such a creature had been caught in 1909 and was held by the Bronx Museum in New York. Goodness. And it was, it was called the Horned Cayman, ah. but they were thought to be extinct. Ah. Well, this description of this one that's been seen by several groups now mm. sounds as if it is the remnant. So we are, might be rediscovering an extinct animal or thought to be extinct. Isn't it marvellous in, in this world we live in that there are still these things to be discovered and and mysteries that can be uncovered. Well, there are, there are <clears throat> particularly in terms of the uh, some of the animals. And, uh, I mean, the giant elephant story that mm. we followed up in, uh, in Nepal, that was a rumour that there was a mammoth living there. It wasn't a mammoth, but people said there was a mammoth because it looked like one. And we went out and found actually what it was, was a gigantic elephant far mm. larger than mm. the normal Asian elephants. We found out that there was 
possibly some sort of link with uh, a creature called a stegodont, which went back millions of years and had the same sort of deformities as the one we were able to photograph and see. Goodness. Did you ever get anywhere with your um, research on the Loch Ness Monster? Well, the Loch Ness Monster was a fascinating story. I got involved in it through Sir Peter Scott, who was alive then. And um, at the time, I was commanding a regiment of young soldiers based in Dover, and we were doing exercises up in the West Highlands. And uh, because I met people who swore blind that they'd seen it. And they were not the sort of people who would tell lies. And I was there when some women were interviewed who had a sighting that day, and they were scared witless. Were they? And something had frightened them very severely. And then I met one of the women's children, who was a boy of about 12, I suppose, who had seen it. And he wasn't scared at all. He'd gone out with a pitchfork into the grounds of their cottage on the side of Lockmore and sort of there to defend them against the, the creature. And his descriptions exactly corresponded with what the women had seen. And they described seeing an enormous lump sticking up in the centre of the um, of the lock. And uh, they said that it was like a whale moving up and down the lock. So the next day I got one of our rubber boats home and I went out on the lock. And the lock at that point was very shallow. And I looked down into the relatively clear water, much clearer than Loch Ness, and there were scrape marks of something big all along the bottom. Something had been moving. Not and, a, and it was obviously not a boat. It's certainly not a boat. And it was right in the middle of the mm. lock and there were great yellow scrapes of something mm. that had been pushing mm. itself along the, exactly where this woman had seen it. So, although I didn't see the thing, I, I was quite convinced that, first of all, that they were not lying and they were not making it up. They had actually seen something. And the only thing I've heard that could give any possible explanation is it could be sturgeon. Ah, and yes. That, that's possible. Because they can be huge, aren't they? Yeah. Big fish, 20 foot long. I mean, so I'm told. And I've never seen one. But mm. the, the thought is, of course, that it is possible to get into Loch Ness from the sea. Mm. And there's a lock at, locks at both ends and connecting to the sea. And there, are, it, there is sturgeon in those northern waters. And it, that's, that's the nearest thing, I would say, to an explanation. It could yeah. be sturgeon. And they, well, I'm sure they will find out. Eventually, we, we did find we had all sorts of we had a robot that went down mm. with, with a camera, yeah, and we actually found a, a population of Arctic char right down on, on, on the bed of Loch Ness, Good. which would explain one of the problems yeah. what did the creature feed on? Yes, exactly. <clears throat> and there were that's no the explanation, yeah, Arctic char breeding in Loch Ness. So your your career in in travel in and these expeditions started in the army, didn't it? When you were training young cadets to acquire a spirit of adventure. <clears throat> well, it started earlier because I was I was in Cyprus and um, the sappers have underwater teams, mm. and my job was to run the underwater team for my squadron. And as a way of training, we wanted tasks that would interest the soldiers. Mm. And the local archaeological department in Nicosia, mm. and so the archaeological department said, uh, you know, there are various wrecks mm. and sites of ruins underwater and so on around the island. We have no one who can die. Archaeologists don't mm. die. Could you possibly do some work for us? And my mm. colonel, who was fairly open-minded sort of chap, said, yes, fine, well, we'll divert the underwater section to go and do some exercises and map these things. So I started off doing underwater expeditions with the army divers. 
So that was all diving. Mm. And um, when eventually I got posted to Santos as an instructor, I went in to see the, the general on my arrival, who was a rather Churchillian figure. And he said, you are going to be the adventurous training officer. And, uh, and he said, you know what that involves? And I said, no, sir. And he said, well, it's quite simple. I want you to get as many of these chaps overseas doing their long vacations uh, for the benefit of their character and the least possible detriment to the empire. <laughs> and so I was given an office. Still the days of the empire, yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. And uh, a completely uh, open, open aim of going around the world and finding us wise to get into an RAF aircraft and go and visit various military detachments around the world and say, look, I'd like some cadets to come along and build a hospital or build a clinic or build a school or look for bugs or beetles or whatever. And that was really the start of it, sending expeditions around the world. One thing leads to another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in your life, it seems that literally one door leads to another door opening. Yeah, sometimes there are too many doors opening at the same time. <laughs> so in a way, your life has had a momentum of its own. You probably didn't sit down and have a sort of five-year or ten-year plan. It was organic, wasn't it? Yes, I, I certainly didn't plan a career as such. A, when I reached Staff College, I was really planning to go on, go through the system, become a senior staff officer, command a regiment, hopefully a brigade later. And I, I certainly began to change my mind. I suddenly realised there was another sort of world. Mm. And, and, and the whole idea of exploration and expeditions, particularly as I was very fortunate in that the army agreed to support me. And... Mm. Without that, it would have been very, very difficult. And later on, of course, it led to, led on to Drake and Raleigh. Yeah. Uh, again, with military support. Fantastic. Which they probably wouldn't be able to do now. But I, know, I want to go back to those, but what was it about exploration and these expeditions that, that triggered your enthusiasm? What did you realise you were good at? I think being an engineer, I was always curious mm. when somebody would say to me, you can't do this for some reason or you can't find this rare lost flower or, or beetle or whatever it is, I would say, why not? Mm. Um, I mean, people used to say, are you keen on climbing? Would you like to climb Everest? And I'd say, well, if you ask me to, I'd put a, put a scaffolding up the side. I wasn't really interested in sort of pitting myself physically against something. But what I was interested in was finding a way. Mm. And this is really, I mean, being a royal engineer, we mm. were always taught to look for ways of getting roads through mountains or mm. railways and there was always an engineering answer. And in fact, a lot of the work that, that I've been involved with ever after has been finding a, a vehicle, a machine, a method mm. of overcoming an obstacle. So, so tenacity, curiosity to defining characteristics, I would say, of your yes. success. And what about as a leader? What do you think makes a good leader? Because you obviously are a great leader. You, you you lead teams um, of about 30 people on these expeditions, don't you? Yeah, well, I, I think I've I thought about this some time ago when somebody asked me this, I had to make a speech. And I thought back to the days of when I was teaching at Sandhurst. Uh, I was asked to write a, a little leaflet on leadership. So I went into the library and I looked up what all the sort of great leaders had recommended. And I think Eisenhower put down eight qualities, Churchill put down 10, and Montgomery, not to be outdone, to put about 22, <laughs> you know. Um, and I realised that the cadets couldn't possibly remember all these qualities that they were meant to possess to be a great leader. 
But I analysed those and I came down to the fact that there were really only two that were absolutely essential. First of all, you had to be able to communicate and secondly, to inspire. Mm. Now, there are lots of other things that are desirable. And if you think back to all the great leaders in history, whether they were or not, say good leaders, but leaders, they had those qualities. Absolutely. And I know you work a lot with with young people and dis- disadvantaged children as well. Do you, in when you're trying to inspire them with this spirit of adventure, because I think you, you believe that pitting yourself physically against challenges is good for building self-confidence, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I think... The- I think it was the Prince of Wales in his maiden speech at the House of Lords that the young people today leave the challenges of war in mm. peacetime. Mm. God forbid there should be a war. But mm. uh, uh, it, undoubtedly, young people do respond to a challenge. Do you think that they should get more of this from school? Well, I, yes, I think so. But part of one of the problems with I haven't been in schools lately, but... The, in the days when I used to go around talking to schools and universities, I noticed that gradually the, the, the amount of teaching that had to go on was getting more and more concentrated, and there was no time for these extramural activities. Mm. The teachers just hardly got time to correct the, pre- the homework at night and get the results out. And For them to say, can you also referee a football match in the afternoon mm. as well? They just hadn't got the time. Mm. So... Operation Riley and, and Drake, how did that come about? Was that Prince Charles's initiative? And Yes, it came about, um, Drake was the first one, and it started with this speech that the Prince of Wales made at the House of Lords. And um, we, in, in the scientific website, was planning a whole series of expeditions around the world, not not necessarily connected. And then we had the, one of them was the, the Great Congo River, or Zaya River expedition. Mm which again, we were fortunate and the media supported it. We had the Daily Telegraph again, and we had the um, Survival Anglia television, and the previous one, which had been the Darien Gap, again, we had the media with us. So they did attract a lot of publicity. But on the, on the Congo River expedition, we had two officers who were both equities to the Prince of Wales, who'd come in their own capacity to, as members of the team. And after the expedition, they talked to him about what we'd done. And then I got a phone call from his private secretary saying that the prince would like to, like you to come and talk to him about it. So I went down and saw him. And he said, damn it, you know, you can do this with two or three young people. Why can't you do it with two or three hundred? And uh, I said, well, sir, we'd have to go away and think about it. And he said, well, can't you come up with some sort of imaginary expedition that would really turn people on and get through to the young people, not only in Britain, but around the world. So we went back and we worked out connecting all the expeditions we've been thinking about into one and getting a ship and going around the world and joining them all up. And so um, the money was produced. The army agreed to back it. Mm. And um, the um, Operation Drake was born. Was born. We, had a, we got a beautiful flagship, um, Brigantine, the eye of the wind. And the expedition went around the world. We had In a year? So, How many years? Uh, There's two years. Mm-hmm. We had 400 young people who went through this very rigorous selection test involving wrestling with gorillas and pythons. And then, of course, when they came back, then they began to do exactly what the prince had said. They became helpers in their community. Some of them helped with training other young people. Some of them became youth workers. And it began to work really well. And the prince, meanwhile, had said, uh, when it was halfway round, 
you can't stop now. Do it again on a bigger scale. I thought, God, you know, it was bad enough trying to keep the, the money because it was always a struggle, even with all this support. Mm. And so we sat down for, got drawing up another one, and we said, well, if we had a bigger ship and if we had four years instead of two mm. and we could take 4,000 young people, not, <laughs> not 400, and um, we were swamped and 56,000 applied. So how uh, did you whittle them down, this KGB test? I mean, test? whittle them down. What did you test them on? We, we were looking really for, first of all, the leadership and then to some extent for courage because we wanted to see that they would stand up well to the sort of rigours that we were going to put them through on the expedition. And how do you know if somebody's courageous unless you, you pitch them against a feet. bunch of tigers in a well, room? Well, you can't. I believe that you, you cannot be courageous without fear. True. And so the answer was to get people frightened stiff. And that was one of the problems, of course, was how do you get somebody frightened stiff without putting them at serious risk? Yes. And that's when we started using animals. And the, what, in, the, in the training? In the training. And we, the first one we used was uh, late at night in a, in a, a barn in, in Kent. They were thoroughly wet, cold, miserable, frightened, and furious. And we always used to say, we got all our ideas from the KGB handbook about you take people's watches away, you disorientate them, you shout at them, you scream at them, mm. you don't offer them any food. Mm. And so feeling pretty, awake. pretty miserable and wretched and not being treated nicely at all. They were shouted at and screamed at them. Mm. And then occasionally they would meet a nice person who would do the other end and be really present. I wonder if you get away with that now. Well, quite. <laughs> but then the first one I watched was, was late at night, the two young people, one of whom was a police cadet, a woman from Gravesend, and she and a, another chap called Richard Labouchier from Jersey were brought in to this darkened barn and they were told that there was an animal in there and all they had to do was to find it, to catch it, to weigh it and measure it. And um, they would said it's quite harmless if you handle it carefully. And they looked around with their torch and so on. And suddenly the girl jumped back and she pulled aside some sacks and beneath that was a 12-foot python. And Did she, she scream? Said, oh, my God, I hate snakes. And, and Monty, of course, we called him. They're quite big. And he began to uncoil and slide across the floor with his tongue flickering. <laughs> oh, she said, I can't touch it. I can't touch it. And we said, well, think of this opportunity of a lifetime, going around the world three months, all expenses paid. You know? And so finally she, she tried to get the snake onto the bathroom scales, but it didn't work. It went one way and the other. So she stood on the, the bathroom scales, wrapped the snake round herself and weighed, weighed her and they got the weight of the snake that way. Actually, that was one of the things we learned about yeah. this very early on, yeah. was how extremely tough the girls were. Really? Because when we started, we hardly had it. We thought there'd be no girls volunteering. But no, they were coming in in their dozens. And when you had a girl on an expedition, yeah. if she even if she was outnumbered 10 to 1, her example would fire up the men and they were determined to keep up. Oh, that's so interesting, and, isn't it? Um, Very good. Uh, we, we had some most outstanding women. And, of course, by the time we came around to Operation Rally, yeah. it was 50-50 or maybe even more at times. And um, a lot of the girls went on to great things. The present Britain's representative for the United Nations, Dame Barbara Woodhead. Was she one was of a... I mean, looking back on the young people who went through the programme, there were dozens of them who really did achieve things and did exactly what the Prince of Wales ho hoped. Is this the legacy that you're most proud of, do you think, in your life? Well, I think, I think 
Yes, it's a, it, it is a team, though. I would not take the credit for it all myself because it's not. It is a huge team of people, mm. and and the, like the volunteers who come in here and give their time, mm. and they're now restoring a, a forest on the west coast of Scotland. But at least they can get there. Mm. And um, the older people too have gone on to do great things. It's not just the young. Yes, and, and maybe it's the connect, connect, being engaged in yeah. in life is what keeps people. Young anyway, isn't it? No, the Christmas the... card list, I tell you, drives you mad. He <laughs> <laughs> started it yet. Do you think that that is a secret to sort of ageing well, is to continue to be plugged in and engaged to all these projects? Oh, I think it helps. I think you, if you're busy mm. doing something worthwhile and challenging, yeah. Yeah. and a challenge is the word, yeah. and, and, and I think if you can do that and it keeps your mind occupied, yeah. You know, they say the best thing, this way to avoid Alzheimer's is keep the brain going. Yes. I mean, you look much younger than you, your 85 years. How do you, you must have to be fit for all these expeditions that you do. So how do well, you, I think a lot how of do you stay fit? I think a lot of it's good luck with it. I think being slightly fat helps. You don't show wrinkles <laughs> in quite the same way. You have no wrinkles. <laughs> and also you're probably a healthy eater, aren't you? Well, I do just make sure that, <laughs> that we eat the right things. You haven't given up alcohol? No, well, I, I try not to drink that much. I drink, I try and stick to drinking red wine, which I'm told is the best thing for you. But, um, you know, I, I like alcohol. One time I used to drink whiskey, but I've tried to cut down on the whiskey. Like good army people. But I see in your in your hall that you've got your Nordic walking sticks. So that's, yes. you you strong. Well, that, those, those are very good, I think, because they exercise the arms as well. Mm. Um, I mean, they don't have to walk with a stick, but... Judith does, because she's got Parkinson, mm. and she um, started walking with them, and I thought, well, I'll try it. But I did, on one expedition I went on in Bolivia some years ago, there was a doctor with us who was, uh, his years were advancing, and I noticed he had two sticks. Mm. And I said, golly, Ed, are you using two sticks? He said, it's an amazing difference it makes going up and down hills. Mm. So I got two. And we were going up and down hills with two sticks was much easier than just with one. going with one. Absolutely. I mean, do you see a time when you won't be able to do these expeditions or you hope not? Well, it all depends on COVID mm. <laughs> and, and health, I suppose. A lot, yes, I, 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 one's got to look to the future and be sensible. One day I won't be able to. All one can do is try and grunt from the side and encourage others. But, I mean, I, I haven't been on a horse for two years and um, before I go to Mongolia I shall have to go down mm. to the equitation place down the road and uh, have a few lessons again just to make sure I can still ride a horse. What do you miss most about not travelling? I mean you've had two years as a, as your wife said as a caged lion, well, a kindly caged lion she said but uh, what do you miss most? Is it the, the sort of waking up in the morning and the, the different smells of the ground. Oh, I think... The, the unknown. I think I think I, I, miss, I miss the warmth in England. Mm-hmm. You know? It's always a bit... I feel the cold in England, when the, the damp, but it's, it's been so lovely to get back into the, into the tropics. Mm-hmm. That level. And I also miss, I suppose, meeting the people, the different people, the challenges. I mean, there are enough challenges here in keeping the SES mm-hmm. going. We're always raising money and we're raising money for... The thing in Brixton or the thing in Liverpool or whatever, mm. and that actually keeps you pretty active, and it doesn't give you really much time to think about all the things you miss. But I do miss things. I do miss mm. the travel. Yeah, the life on the road a bit. Yes. You never really know what's going to happen the next day, do you? It's always a bit of an unknown. Well, you try and plan for what's going to happen <laughs> the next day, whether it does. 
And I bet, um, I bet you're very organized. You have a very organized and disciplined brain. I suspect, having been in the army for thirty-seven years, not as organized as you might think. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I, I, I think one tends to flip slightly from one thing to another. You know, you put things to one side and say, "Oh, I'll do that tomorrow." Um, and they say, no, you mustn't, let's do it now. And you were often referred to as the last of the great British explorers. Oh, God, no, I hope not. Why, yes, we we hope it goes on, don't we? Exploration isn't going to come to a, an end, is it? No, I don't think it is. I mean, there's an awful lot still to do, uh, right up in space and underwater. Mm. And there are, I mean, I'm particularly keen with the, with the bursary scheme that the Scientific Exploration Society is running now. And you know, we have this awards that we give out every year. Mm. And that's particularly encouraging because there are lots of young people, not not all of them British, from all over the world, who are going out and doing exciting and challenging things. And there are more and more coming to them. And once COVID is over again, and I think we've got to think about that, one day it will be over. Mm. I'm sure COVID may well go on forever, like mm. flu, but, mm. but there will be a, a chance mm. to travel again. Mm. And there are good things to do and challenging so I think we've got to go on encouraging more and more. And look at some of the young people who were involved. in Leveson Wood was one of the young, young blood who came for advice many years ago. And Bear Grylls, another one. Mm. Bear Grylls' father, I used to know, father and mother. And Bear appeared over the house one day, flying over in a, in a flying machine. And he landed in the field behind here. It was very amusing because just behind him came another flying machine, which had two people in it. And... Um, when it landed, I went over and had a chat with the the man and the, the youngish girl and her teens sitting on the back of this paramotor. And I said to her, are you, are you his, his girlfriend or whatever it is? And she said, no, I'm his sister. I said, she said, I'm at school in Charlesbury. Oh, I said, she said, I'm at St Mary's. I said, really? What does the school think? Because the boarding school, what does the school think you're doing this afternoon? She said, I told them I'm on a nature walk with my brother. <laughs> and she'd flown over this thing and that in the oh, field. Wonderful. I mean, the value of exploration, of course, even in post-colonial t- eras, is that it forges understanding between nations rather than the domination that it once was, perhaps. In the well, I always, one of the things I always say when I'm talking to the young is, you know, at this time, you may not have much money, but you've got your health properly, mm. you've got your fit, and... You can go out and see the world, and that's what you should do. Mm. Because by the time you're ancient and old, you won't. You may have a lot of money, mm. but you won't have the prime joys of being fit and able mm. to go and do things. Yeah. So I recommend to them to go out and see the world, and while you're there, try and do something to make the world a better place. Well, I, I totally agree with you. And um, before we wrap up, I just really want to know is when you are in an in a hostile environment, and you must, I know you've been in many hostile environments, and the sense of danger is tangible, and you feel that the people who are confronting you may not be friends. What do you do? How do you? I, I think I've read before that you have rather uh, a, a rather funny way of dealing, <laughs> of diffusing the moment of tension. Well, you've got to try to defuse the situation. Mm. In Papua New Guinea, we had to be very careful indeed because a lot of the nomadic tribes and people living in these remote areas where they've never seen anyone in the outside world. I mean, we did meet one group. We were the first outsiders they'd ever seen. But these people would react in a hostile way if they thought you endangered them. And so we, we one of the things I got hold of was a laughing machine, <laughs> which I've still got. And, um, you know, it was it was quite simple because you turned it on, it, it made hysterical laughter. <laughs> 
And it was very hard for someone to be hostile when actually they're forcing them to laugh. <laughs> so if you could, but there were all sorts of little tricks you could do. You could give a gift like a mirror. Mm. Well, people used to joke about mirrors mm. being given to natives. But actually, mm. you give someone who's from a very simple mm. background a mirror and they look at it. And see, well, this is something new. Mm. And then you smile, and a mm. smile makes them smile. Mm. So I think in, in danger, you try to smile. The, the biggest bomb I ever had was uh, when we were attacked in Ethiopia, and the people who were attacking us were too far away to see whether we were smiling or not. <laughs> and so they started shooting at us. Mm. But um, it, it's really a question of trying to defuse the situation. And are there places in the world that you still haven't been to and would like to visit? Oh, yes. I mean, I always want to go to Kamchatka in, in Russia. Mm, me too. Because I'm, I'm passionately fond about tigers, and I'd love to go and see the tiger there, which is the Siberian. And um, I've got a good painting in my study of mm. one of them. Um, I've never seen a Siberian tiger. I've seen lots of films of them. Mm. I've seen plenty of the Bengal tigers. Mm. But well, I'd love to see a Siberian. Here's to the world opening up again and you meeting your... Siberian tigers and the next decade of travel. Thank you so much for talking to me. If you've enjoyed today's show, you can hear more episodes in the series by clicking follow wherever you're listening to this or simply searching The Third Act on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. And if you think your friends would love to listen, please do tell them about the series. This episode was produced by Pete Norton and made possible by Orion's, luxurious residences that are redefining later living in the heart of Chelsea. I'm Catherine Fairweather, and I'll see you back next week for another episode of The Third Act. 